0: welcome to episode 369 with my guest erica garza uh today's episode is brought to us by squarespace you know we talk on the podcast a lot about uh doing work to become our authentic selves and pursuing our passions and the importance of creativity and expression and squarespace is a great product for doing that i've used it it's super intuitive uh it, it's so easy with their templates to make a unique website for whatever you want to showcase. Your work, your blog, whatever content. You can sell products, services, whatever, in just a few clicks. Um, yeah, I recommend it. Check it out. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Uh, this is a mental Illness Happy Hour. I hope I didn't catch you off guard. Uh, boy, that, would that have been weird if you meant to be listening to another podcast, and here I come elbowing my way into your ears. Uh, this is, uh, this podcast is a place for, uh, honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, I'm not a therapist. The show is not meant to be a solution to anything. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the show is part interview, part, uh, listener confessions via the surveys that uh, people fill out and I read. And, uh, and I love it. I love doing it. And I love, uh, the, Input that I get from from you guys, the listeners, uh, here's an some moment uh, filled out by accidental criminal, and uh, she writes, I've been supporting and caring for a friend who has been suicidal since Christmas. The other night, he told me he'd taken out his gun and stared at it thinking about killing himself. I drove over to his house, and after some discussion, I convinced him to let me have his gun for the time being until he felt safe having it in his home again. Physically and emotionally exhausted, I drove home after getting him settled when I realized I hadn't eaten dinner and I was starving. I pulled into McDonald's to get some fries, and as the drive-thru employee opened the window, I saw his smile quickly fade as he handed me my order and almost slammed the window shut. Confused as to what I'd done, I drove away, setting the bag down next to me. It was only then that I realized the handgun had been sitting on the center console the entire time, pointed directly at the McDonald's worker while he handed a bag of food to a messy, bleary-eyed, emotional woman. That's actually in their training film, so he shouldn't have been shocked. Um, This... Let's let's see, is this part of... No, this is a different survey. Oh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey, and this was filled out by a woman who refers to herself as, I'm not staring at you, I'm staring at your food. And describing uh, her struggle with anorexia in a sentence, uh, she writes, I want nothing more than to be at a healthy weight. I also can't think of anything more terrifying than the process it takes to get there. Man, isn't that addiction in a nutshell? Look, you can either die a miserable death or you can do this thing that people are suggesting that will help you get healthier but involves opening up and talking about your feelings and connecting to people. Let me think about that and get back to you. (laughs) Oh, and then a couple of snapshots from, uh, from her life. Uh going to pick up a few groceries, getting to the grocery store, and experiencing an unbelievable high, walking down every aisle, looking at the food, reading nutrition information of food I will never let myself eat, standing in front of a shelf, feigning indecision just to experience a few minutes of the goddamn smell of the bread section, realizing I've spent way more time in that store than is socially acceptable, leaving the grocery store only to realize I haven't picked up what I needed, going to another store. Wasting hours, uh, and wasting hours, and then it gets cut off. Uh, number two, in the worst days of my eating disorder, I was convinced that my mom was injecting my bread with butter every time she was in the kitchen or near the fridge. I would find some excuse to get myself into the kitchen and watch her like a hawk to make sure she wasn't doing this. I also always went with her to get groceries just in case she was doing the butter injections in the car on the way back. Brain. What the actual fuck? Question mark. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, man. The brain. The brain. Oh. You think the opposite sex is baffling. The brain. Uh, This is a same survey filled out by Isla. And uh, she writes, I remember when I was around six years old, my mom took me to see my dad cheat on her with a woman at his job. I remember seeing her long red hair and the light from his workplace back door illuminating their outlined, embracing bodies. My mother's face was blocked with shadow, and she told me to keep my mouth shut or the family would fall apart. I cried and cried during the ride home, although quietly. My mother threatened to spank me if I cried loudly as a kid, or even at all. I grew disillusioned with my family after that. Wow. And, uh... She is still a teenager and uh, that is good that you are disillusioned with your family, that you're beginning to see the reality that they cannot meet your needs and uh, that's that's the beginning of sanity is uh, no longer going to the, uh, the dry well hoping that uh, there's water there. And then any comments to make the podcast better? Thank you, Paul. You make me feel normal. That's like... That makes me feel so good when I feel like um, some part of the show has uh, helped somebody in some way. This is a happy moment filled out by Dee. And she writes, I was at a cafe with a friend and a woman approached and asked if I could move a coffee table to the side uh because she couldn't do to her OCD. It was clear she was feeling very anxious and was embarrassed to even ask. Just the look on her face when I told her it was no big deal and that I also had OCD was priceless. We immediately connected, as I often do with other people with OCD, and found out we go to the same clinic. And I told her that I felt the exact same way when I was in public and unable to step on cracks or lines. She just looked down at the tiles, and I saw she was doing the exact same thing that I used to. Telling her that it actually does get better and that it was completely okay to feel the way she felt made me so happy and remember how far I've come. Also, major props to her as during my worst periods with OCD, I would never have had the guts to ask strangers for help. Those moments of connection are just like... Those are the feelings that I thought were always going to come from money or fame or power. But no, it's connection and vulnerability, man. That is that is where it's at. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Forest Bear. And uh, he writes um, about his depression. My life feels like I'm at the wrong house party and there are no buses or Ubers around so I can't leave. Everyone else seems to be having a great time. And can't see why I'm not and then he shares a snapshot from his life and he writes my dad once took me up a mountain on a walk to talk about life and I opened up a tiny tiny bit about my chronic pain and mental struggles his response was that it it was all in my head and to get on with it the irony of your dad taking you on a walk to talk about life and then you share about your life and he doesn't want to hear it. He should have said, Hey, would you like to go on a walk so that you can only share the things with me that I want to hear? <laughs> he should have hired a kid to go on a, a hike with him. Um, you know, the fact that you are battling depression is not surprising growing up in an emotionally invalidating environment. That, anybody who grows up in an emotionally invalidating or emotionally avoidant household that doesn't have anger or depression is a miracle to me so um that to me is a normal reaction to a abnormal environment again i'm not a therapist but i did cook chicken on cable tv for 16 years and occasionally i wore a pretty official looking apron Oh, and uh, for 25 years, I told dick jokes to semi-conscious drunks in uh, towns across the Midwest, so I know what I'm talking about. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Kelsey, and uh, she writes about her anxiety. Anxiety is such an odd beast. It's not even big. It's small and weak and frightened in a corner, but its shadow is cast long and large and looming over you, and its darkness sheaths you so you cannot see the real thing. A little monster in fetal position crying in the corner, wet and aching to be back inside the soft solitude of the womb's world. That was a little poem right there. Thank you, Kelsey. God, you guys constantly uh, just blow me away with your ability to paint these pictures. Um... That are so relatable to the rest of us. Uh, David describes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't say his whole name. David, the angry sadness. You know what? If you're going to be angry, you might as well have sadness come along. It's it's one of the best two for ones. Uh, angry and sadness. They're kind of the depression and anxiety of. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Fill in the blank about his depression. He writes, somewhere between major and persistent depression. For things that I should be excited about, my depression makes me dread everything. It's hard to look forward to things. When coming up to an event that I should be excited about, I do everything I can to try and get out of it. David, do you have any idea how many of us are shaking our heads right now going, oh my God, me too. Me too. Fuck. Yeah, we break out the crystal ball, and let's see what kind of doom is going to shed all over this thing that uh, I might have a chance of loving. And then a snapshot from his life. Every time me or one of my siblings would get injured, my father would get furious, almost uncontrollably angry, yelling, throwing things, getting in our faces and making us feel that we were idiots for getting injured. My father has always had anger issues, and in my 40-plus years of being alive, it's the only thing that he has or will ever hand down to me. Uh, I swore that I would never be like him, but my own anger issues have had an effect on my children. My anger has also morphed into depression and anxiety. One morning a few years back, my wife and I were getting our kids ready for school, and something happened that triggered a very angry response. I started to yell. My kids got scared, and so did my wife. Kids went to school, wife went to work, and I set up my computer to work from home. My wife emailed me later that morning to ask me if I was okay and told me that I shouldn't have flown off the handle like that. I responded, okay, then hit send. She read that email and called me right away because she thought that I was going to kill myself. It was the wake-up call I needed. I went to my doctor the next day and broke down crying in his office. I told him what had happened and that I couldn't be like that anymore. I was put on antidepressants, and within a couple of short weeks, I felt like a new person. I still struggle with many things from my past, but thanks to my wife, I was able to take more control over my life, and my relationship with her and my kids have been amazing. You know, I just want to say that that is a real fucking man. That is a man who saw the truth and he did what was necessary for his family his wife his kids and for himself as as humbling as it was to do that 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 is people like that are heroes to me and i know that sounds like i'm i'm being uh, you know hyperbolic but i'm really not because most people don't do that most people Don't get that honest with themselves. There is nobody that we lie to as much as ourselves. Thank you for that, David. And uh, please tell both angry and sadness that I give my regards. Um, I think now would be a good time to talk about uh, our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. If you want to be the authentic person... That has always been inside you. Therapy is such a huge way to do it. I don't even want to think about where I would be without having done therapy in the past and continuing to do therapy today. It helps me so much to check in with my therapist every week. Uh, I've been using BetterHelp for over a year and a half now, and I love it. Uh, Donna, my therapist, helps give me clarity on things she asks the right questions she doesn't tell me what to do Um, and it's it's just such a great uh, experience. So if you want to know more about it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. And it's important you put the slash mental in there so they'll know you're coming from the podcast. And you can experience a free week of uh, counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. You'll just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you uh, with a counselor. And you can always change counselors if you, if you want to. And uh, you need to be 18. I highly recommend it. And you can uh, communicate with your therapist more than once a week, and you can do it through a variety of mediums. It really depends on the on the therapist, but um, it's uh, it's just a great it's a great uh, great place to get help. Seat Geek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last minute deal or need the perfect gift, Seat Geek helps you find the best seats at the bet the bet. The best price is fully guaranteed. I downloaded SeatGeek for, uh, on, on my phone, and I looked up tickets. Uh, and I gotta tell you, it is so logically laid out, so intuitive and ye- easy to get around. Uh, they have a, f- a filter on there where you can look at things either by price or uh, by how many deal points uh, it gets, which is a brilliant. Idea, And so I went on there, and Paul Simon is an artist I have always wanted to see. I wasn't even aware he was coming to town. One of the things I like about SeatGeek is you can view by uh, comedy or music or sports or theater. And so I was looking through music, and I saw he's coming to the Hollywood Bowl, which I have never been to. Lived here 24 years. It's like the icon of attending a musical event in Hollywood, and I've never been there, so I use SeatGeek, and I bought two tickets for Paul Simon, and I'm super excited, and it was easy as hell. And if you have, if you think I'm BS, you go to the uh, App Store to download the the SeatGeek uh, app, and you'll see that it has nine thousand five star reviews, so I ain't BS in you. Uh, so check it out, you guys. You can get 20 bucks off your first seat geek purchase that is such a hard word to say uh just download the seat geek app and enter the promo code mental and then uh you'll be on your way that's promo code mental for 20 bucks off your first seat geek purchase all right we're going to get to the interview uh this is one last thing this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by nemo Uh, who writes uh, about her depression. She says, if I have managed to shower, brush my teeth, and do laundry all in the same day, it's a miracle. If I've also washed the dishes, I'm probably manic. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. I'm here with Erica Garza, who is uh, a writer and a great writer, at that. She uh, she has a book uh, out right now uh, called "Getting Off," uh, which is uh, among other things about uh, being a recovering sex addict, um, being married. Um, I read some of your uh, articles in Salon in preparing for the uh, the interview. And I was really struck by uh, how forthcoming you are in your describing what it feels like not only to be a sex addict, but to be a female sex addict and all the added uh, weight and shame and et cetera that that, that that carries.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like most women have that extra layer of shame, mostly because they're not talking about it. They've never heard another woman talk about it. And I know from my experience growing up, it always seemed like sex was something that was dirty or bad or something that was meant for boys and for men and that my interest in it meant that something was wrong with me. And I think a lot of women feel that way. And I really wanted to open that up to explore that and to tell my story, understand myself better, but also show other women that it's okay to talk about these things. Somebody has to stand up and talk about it.
0: Uh, Plus you were raised Catholic. Yes. So you know, there's shame. If you're paying attention, of course, there's going to be shame. Yeah. Uh, if you're sleeping through church, you might get away without shame. But uh, <laughs> uh, I was also raised Catholic, and
1: um, I'm sorry, struggle <laughs>
0: struggle with a lot of the same things that uh, that you struggle with. So I related very much to to what you wrote. And one of the things uh, I was telling Erica before we started recording is um, in the pieces that you write. You include your relationship with your husband and how it affects him, how he views you, the anxiety you have about him judging or not judging you. And I think it's such an important thing because without that, it's it could just be titillation, writing for the sake of titillation. But I like in your writing that you are delving into the emotions underneath the acting out, right. which is really what it's all about. A lot of people, I think, think sex addiction is about horniness, and can you can you talk about that?
1: Well, for me, the most destructive aspect of my sexual addiction was the shame aspect of it. I had to feel a. F- I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure the two went hand in hand and I didn't know how to separate the two of them, which maybe began with the Catholicism the first time I masturbated I felt really bad about it thought I was doing something horrible I was going to be put into hell and all sorts of really twisted ideas and that also added to the thrill. Of it. So it was really difficult for me to um, process, and I, I didn't understand it all the way into my 20s while I was making these destructive choices just to feel that same dose of shame, that same dose of pleasure, and it just taken me too far. And the whole thing with my husband is I think a lot of that, um, the fear of telling him all these dark secrets and him finding out who I really was, a lot of that just lived in my head and didn't really exist. And I found this great relief in being able to share these things with him and it actually brought us closer. And I really wanted to understand that and take that to a new level in sharing that openly. And that's why I started writing about it and going to meetings where I could talk to other people openly. And just this big process of revealing these things has been so empowering.
0: Yeah, uh, your your writing is really important. And I think everybody should read it because it's there's such a lack of understanding and empathy around subjects like this and you know my hope is that eventually this will become normalized and we won't look at people like oh you know they were just born a pervert and they're horny and something must be wrong with them Mm. um as you were you talked about the the um, combination of shame and pleasure often going together. There's a book by a guy named Jack Morin, M-O-R-I-N, called The Erotic Mind. And one of the things that he found in studying people's sexuality is the thing that gets them off is oftentimes the thing that brings them the most anxiety. Mm. Uh, be it moral anxiety. Maybe it was a theme in an event that happened that traumatized them. Uh, or something they worry about. Uh, Part of the show uh, I do here involves anonymous confessions filled out by listeners, and they often share trauma that happened to them as well as uh, their most powerful sexual fantasies. And the relationship between trauma and sexual fantasies is uh, unmistakable in so many of us. Uh, Have you ever?
1: That is so interesting. I haven't heard of that book. I'd love to look it up.
0: Yeah, it's it's really good. And and essentially, the bigger the hurdle, um, I'm I'm butchering it and and trying to paraphrase it. But the bigger the hurdle, the harder the orgasm. Um, I've gotten so many surveys or emails from feminists who. Nothing makes them come harder than imagine, uh, being used as a, as a sex object and they feel like it's a moral failure on their part. And I always say on the podcast, no, it has nothing. We don't choose what gets us off. We just choose how, how we express it. Mm -hmm. And, um, that, that's why I think it's so beautiful about your writing is you're sharing it with your husband and it is a way you're showing the deepest, darkest part of you that you have i have that behind that vault and when your husband sees it describe that feeling when you when you when you share something really scary with him
1: oh it's just the ultimate connection the ultimate um just being present with another person and being seen i mean for so long i tried to hide from other people and pretend to be what i what i thought they wanted me to be and it's so lonely to be that way and to pretend all the time and and exhausting exhausting. yeah Yeah. absolutely um and to just be myself it really showed me like okay i'm i'm not so bad you know Mm. maybe i do have good qualities to share and lots of just because i struggled with confidence for so long um to be able to just stand in your truth is is a lovely thing
0: um and i've met quite a few women um who struggle with uh, compulsive masturbation struggled with pornography uh and they so many of them thought they were alone until they either met other women in a women in a support group or read a book or whatever um so um it it's it's important work that, that you're doing and uh i i hope that what you're sharing uh brings comfort to not only women but just people in general who are struggling with that shame for the longest time i always felt like um all women are less dirty than any single man and now of course i realize that it's not about dirty it's often just about you know wounds or coping skills or or whatever but um, if you don't talk about it you'll never get the opportunity to realize you're not alone
1: right and it does put up this wall between men and women it's like you said you didn't think that women were that dirty and a lot of men don't think that women watch porn and a lot of people don't think that women can become addicted and there's all these assumptions about women when really i don't think that our sexuality is much different i mean i've received so much mail from men and women um after i've written some of these essays and especially after the book came out and they all pretty much say the same exact thing in every every email you know they feel lonely they feel powerless they feel ashamed and the only difference is that women aren't coming forward and talking about it publicly
0: and then the shame makes you want to soothe yourself with acting out even more right um i'll save it till later but i would love for you to talk about what you've discovered healthy expressions of sex look like versus those that are unhealthy um because at to me, morality doesn't really have anything to to do with it, unless we're involving somebody who is unconsenting or being tricked or or, or something exactly. like that. I
1: agree with that.
0: Yeah, um, but let's go back. Let's talk about your childhood, if you're comfortable uh, talking about that. What was what was it like? Where where you grew up? The family you grew up with? What was the emotional temperature in your in your house?
1: So I had a pretty stable, normal, I mean, normal is a bad word, but I had a fairly happy and safe um, upbringing. I grew up on the east side of LA mm-hmm. in a little suburb called Montebello, which nobody's ever heard of. No, um, I, know Ma- I know Montebello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my parents, uh, my dad was born in Mexico. My mom's like third generation Mexican and um yeah catholic school from kindergarten all the way through high school i had an older brother three years older and a younger sister 10 years younger and i was always really close to my mom Um, my dad worked a lot really long hours so i didn't see him much um but felt very loved by him anyway but um when my sister was born i remember feeling Uh, Really upset about it uh, because the world was coming to an end and um, I just knew that I wasn't going to get my mom's attention and I really loved, I mean, I would skip school and hang out with my mom in bed all the time and watch movies all day and I really just treasured um, spending time with her. And yeah, my sister came along and suddenly... Um, i just didn 't get that attention anymore, and i didn 't know what to do with myself, so I really threw myself into school and academics. I became a spelling bee uh, enthusiast and um, and really tried to impress my parents that way through academics and They were always really proud, um, But when I was twelve, I was diagnosed with scoliosis, and I had to wear a back brace. And that's when I started feeling like, okay, um, not only am I not going to really get attention at home, but I'm not going to get attention from other people in school, and I don't want their attention because it's probably going to be negative attention. So I really shut down and became really isolated and self-conscious and really socially anxious. Um, And that's when I started (laughs) using masturbation as a coping mechanism because I discovered it around the same time, 12 years old. Um, Thanks
0: to to Loveline.
1: Yeah, thanks to Loveline. I was listening to Dr. Drew, and a a woman called in and said that she um, had a mind-blowing orgasm from a water faucet. And so I gave it a try, and life was changed, and I couldn't stop doing it. And I really found it was a great relief for all the stress and worry that came up around socializing. And yeah, it all kind of spun out of control from there.
0: The the first orgasm is... uh, Trying to describe it to somebody who's never had one would be like describing color to a person who has never <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: had sight yeah it's so it's such a revelation it it it's almost it's like walking through a door into the next phase of your life. it feels so binary, you know like there's the day before I orgasmed and the days after i uh i right. orgasmed yeah um what did you? Did you intend, well, obviously, because you heard the the technique that she was saying. Um, did you, how much did you know about sex when you went to do that that first time?
1: Very little. Okay. I would say nothing at all. Okay. I had, I may have picked up a few things from movies, but nothing explicit. I had no idea how it worked. I had never heard the word orgasm before. So it was just completely foreign and mysterious mm-hmm. and exciting.
0: What? Parts and don't let me put words into your mouth, but what parts of your psyche and your soul do you think felt soothed? Because, you know, obviously your body felt great when you had that first orgasm. But for those of us that keep going back and back to it as a coping mechanism, there's usually something more that it's doing Mm -hmm. for us rather than releasing, um, you know, our horniness or whatever you want to call it. What do you think was... Being soothed.
1: I think my mind certainly—all um, the chatter and worry and just like, the, like like what the constant thoughts that people don't like me. I'm ugly. I'm worthless. I'm embarrassing. I'm weird. Um, lots of things like that. Were
0: there moments in your life where that was said to you, or you? What what brought you to that conclusion?
1: Um, just social things. I think starting with my parents, even though my parents were very loving, I guess I still was feeling the effect of like not getting too much of their attention. And also around that time, um, we had some other family members move in with me. And it was like two boy cousins and my brother. So I felt like the boys were in this pack, and they were special and funny and um, cooler than I was. And so I had all of this rejection and these feelings of um, inferiority with boys. And and then with all the school stuff that came up, um, I started getting bullied uh, because of the back brace and because I was just really shy and kept to myself and people saw me as an easy target. And so that kind of social rejection constantly made me um, my head fill with thoughts of Worthlessness, and so, yeah, when I would masturbate, all I would think about was having the orgasm. That was my goal right then. I didn't have to worry about anything else but attaining this one tiny thing, and for a moment, everything else can fall away. Um, and I just kept using it that way.
0: I heard somebody in uh, my support group one time refer to it as a and I was like, that is the perfect description for mm. it. and uh, I can find oblivion in other things, you know, a movie that is so absorbing that I forget I'm watching a movie. Uh but the nice thing about an orgasm is you kind of know what you're gonna get. Mm. You know, there's not a big roll of the dice. Right. It's like you know how it's gonna feel, you generally know how long it's gonna take to get there, um, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um any events in your life or um patterns In your house that made you feel ill at ease, that you just kind of brushed away Um, things maybe around privacy or conversations of things. And I guess what I'm looking for is most people who I've found um, who I know use sex uh, to soothe ourselves as opposed to, you know, just for. Getting rid of horniness or or intimacy, there was some event or pattern of events that kind of helped set us up for that to be our drug of choice. Um, It could be an unwanted um, physical contact. Some you know the way a family member looks at us. semi-unwanted first experience with a peer. Um, I think a lot of times people think it has to be, oh, you know, it was a, a rape or a molestation or something like that. But reading the surveys a- and my own personal story, I found that actually the vast majority of it is stuff that's kind of under the radar and often we're not even aware of it. Mm. Is Does any of that... Um, Ring any bells for you or?
1: Well, maybe because I spent a lot of time alone and at home. Um, My mom was very protective, didn't really allow me to go out and go over to friends' houses or walk to school or even play in the front yard. Um, She was really paranoid about something happening to us. And um, I think that that led me to just foster this really rich internal world um i i did a lot of reading i watched a lot of tv but I, I stayed home and i spent a lot of time by myself and i feel like maybe if i'd been more social or something i would have turned to something like alcohol or pot or something with friends and that would have turned into something else i mean i don't know but masturbating seemed the most accessible private thing i could do um And I could do it whenever I wanted, and nobody would know behind closed doors. So that might be a reason.
0: Um, Would you mind reading something that you've written?
1: I can read an essay.
0: That would be fantastic.
1: Okay, so this is my feminist dilemma at the peep show from Salon. How much is the show? I asked the balding man standing at the foot of the stairs. Just behind him, the mystery radiates. Half-naked women are waiting to become fully naked women for paying customers, like me. And everything about this idea excites me more than I can handle. The thrill of naked flesh, the power of money, the heat of doing something taboo. I've had a few drinks and my husband is 3,000 miles away. I'm ready to cross lines and masturbate in front of a compliant stranger. The man looks confused. You mean for the peep show? Yes, the peep show. I sigh. I've just been belting out Bon Jovi and Johnny Cash songs at a nearby karaoke bar with coworkers in the type of place that provides a whole stage for you to stagger through broken song lyrics at various pitches in full view. Now I'm dizzy and horny and have no interest in explaining to the man that even a young, healthy woman dressed in corporate attire like myself can get off on paying a woman to strip for me. Um, he scratches his head literally as if the stimulation of dead follicles should somehow make sense of this situation. He must be new at this job. Any seasoned peep show bodyguard wouldn't be phased by its variety of customers. Even though I'm tipsy and on a mission, I feel bad, judged, flawed. If I had a penis, the man wouldn't have that look on his face. The look that says, you are in the wrong place, lady. Something's wrong with you. Then again, maybe he isn't judging Maybe he isn't judging me at all. Maybe my biggest critic is me. For one, I'm a sex addict. And though months have passed since I last watched hardcore porn, my drug of choice, I've somehow managed to convince myself on this night that peep shows are okay. Alcohol and work stress have helped me come up with this ridiculous idea. Little do I realize this is the beginning of a relapse, and it will lead to obsessive scrolling through Craigslist and back pages for months, expensive strip club visits, and of course, multiple porn binges. Not to mention all the consequ- consequential emotional baggage that will follow. Isolation, secrecy, anger, self-loathing. But just as tormenting is the hypocrisy i feel as a proud feminist for years i've been vocal about how peep shows and strip clubs and porn and prostitution perpetuate the objectification and exploitation of women there is a part of me that clings to these beliefs yet another part that feels powerfully tugged toward them this latter part believes that women should be entitled to use their bodies however they wish and it's not my job to monitor that in fact Trying to argue against a woman's choice to seek sex work and victimizing her without actually knowing her story seems a much more anti-feminist approach. Obviously, I know that in some countries, even in America, women go into these professions for horrid and horrifying reasons. Poverty, abuse, force, self-hatred. But what about porn stars like Aja Akira? As a woman who had a privileged childhood and performs to fulfill her exotic desires, Akira doesn't seem to need saving. What if the women at the peep show don't need saving either? What if they love their job? $40 baby. I hear a soft voice call out from the top of the stairs. The balding man looks at her, my savior. Come up this way. The bodyguard gives his attention to a rack of thongs while I make my way up the stairs, my laptop bag heavy on my side, my palms wet, my heart ready to bust. The woman is smiling, maybe because it's her job to smile. Maybe because she likes smiling. Maybe because she likes seeing a different kind of clientele climb these steps. I'm not sure. I don't ask. I smile back. It's thirty dollars to see me topless she says if you pay forty I'll play with my pussy time slows down when that electrifying word slith- slithers out of her mouth and into the air that's it i say that's what i want i'll pay forty o okay, k honey just go in there she points to a dark room with a small stool and I go in and sit down She closes the door for me and steps into the adjoining room. Between us now, there is glass, a curtain, and my heavy breath. The space eerily resembles a church confessional, and I think for a moment how humiliating it would be if the curtain opened up to a disapproving priest and I'd been somehow (laughs) duped into revisiting my Catholic girlhood guilt. It's so quiet now that I can hear the bodyguard below rummaging with the lingerie. I wonder if he gets employee discounts on peep shows, and I feel slightly jealous. My thoughts are racing. She's so hot. She's so nice. $40 is a lot of money. $40 is not that bad. I wish I hadn't sung Bon Jovi. The curtain opens, and there she is, flattered by a beam of red light cast down on her dark skin. She's still calling me baby, asking me if I like it, it being her legs spread, her bare breasts, her gyrating hips, her fingers enveloped by her sex, her titillating presence there for me, a business traveler with an itch that needs to be scratched like so many other types of customers before me. But who am I kidding? Do many 30-ish female business travelers who happen to have good sex lives with their husbands frequent peep shows? Later, a few Google searches will lead me to many articles on visiting strip clubs, but none of these address women going to peep shows, which is an entirely different animal. Unlike the strip club, I'm not sharing this woman with anyone else. I'm allowed to masturbate right there in front of her. The excitement of the strip club is about knocking back drinks with the ladies, proving to the male spectators that I too can slip a few dollars into a G string. This satisfies a deeper craving. With my hand down my pants working fast and hungrily, it doesn't take me long to climax. This is a good thing since time runs out fast at the peep show, and I wasn't willing to pay beyond $40. I don't have to pull up my pants or clean myself up, so I'm up and outside quickly. Somehow this gives me a Slight boost of pride, as if the janitor will be so grateful when he or she realizes I'm a woman and I haven't Jackson Pollocked the place up. <laughs> Thank you, I say to my entertainer for the evening, and she nods at me, still smiling. The bodyguard has moved on to a discount bin of furry handcuffs, pleather whips, and other miscellaneous items of the BDSM variety. He turns his attention to me as I make my way down the stairs and onto the same level as him, still looking confused, his face full of questions. I wish I could say I was too saturated in the post-orgasm glow to care, but on the stumble back to the hotel room I feel tormented. I can't stop thinking about his eyes on me. Anger ensues and not long after, shame. On the flight home to my husband, I realize I have to tell him about the peep show, not only because we don't keep secrets from each other, but also because I found confession to be one of the most effective ways to diffuse guilt. If that's not a sign of my Catholic upbringing, I don't know <laughs> what it is. We had only just pulled away from the airport arrivals curb when I utter what no spouse wants to hear when their beloved comes back from a business trip. I have to talk to you. Something happened while I was away. Okay, he says, looking me over carefully. Should I pull over? No, keep driving. I take a deep breath. I went to a peep show. A what? He chuckles. Chuckles. Those still exist? Yes, they still exist. I look down on my lap, feeling embarrassed, not only at my indiscretion, but also at how dated my sexual proclivities apparently are. <laughs> are you upset with me? No, of course not, he says. Was she hot? If the conversation were reversed, I definitely would have pulled over and I would not be laughing. Then again, if I had been involved with men during my time away, I doubt he'd be laughing either. Instead, my husband finds my same-sex sexual curiosity unthreatening, even arousing at times. The person who struggles and aches and agonizes over this behavior is me. In a 2011 article for The Guardian, UK porn counsellor Jason Dean cited one in three clients seeking help for porn addiction were women. The main contrast between his male and female clients? Guilt. Porn addiction is seen as a man's problem and therefore not acceptable for women, said Dean. There's a real sense among women that it's bad, dirty, wrong, and they're often unable to get beyond that. Three years later, there are few updated statistics available on the subject of women purchasing sex or compulsively watching porn. Porn. Most articles weigh heavily on male-centric data. Slate reported late last year that a recent Pew Research Center report found that only 8% of women watched porn online, an improbably low statistic. What's more likely is that women are still too ashamed to talk about their habits, just like they were in 2011, just like I was when I first discovered my habits in 1994. I often wonder if my own sexual addiction could have been prevented if my sexual impulses didn't get so wrapped up in shame, but shame and secrecy became part of the thrill. First, the shame came from Catholicism. Then, after pushing away organized religion, the shame came from another doctrine, feminism. This isn't feminism's fault, though. Many misconceptions about the movement persist. We all have hairy armpits. We all keep our maiden names. But the truth is that many of us disagree on matters like this, just as we disagree about the empowering nature of sex work. And our disagreements do not prove that feminism is failing or that women are failing, our disagreements prove there has never been a more appropriate time than now to talk about it. But whether or not peep shows are okay for other people, I know they're unhealthy for me, just like porn. They open the door to fiendish behavior, and I have little capacity for moderation when it comes to lower regions. My work for now is to find other forms of thrill and sexual satisfaction, and the next time I get drunk at karaoke with coworkers, I'm going to bypass the peep show on the way home. I'll let Bon Jovi be the one thing I regret.
0: Yeah, you should be ashamed that you (laughs) karaoke to Bon Jovi. I
1: remember having a really good time doing
0: that. uh, I'm sure I'm going to get emails now. uh, And any of you uh, trying to defend Bon Jovi, uh, (laughs) fuck right off. But um, I
1: I do want to say one hmm. thing about that. Um, I wrote that in 2015, I think, early Mm -hmm. 2015, so a few years ago. And that was when I was in the early stages of my recovery when I really believed that i had to stop watching porn completely Mm -hmm. in order to consider myself cured or healed or whatever um and now i do watch porn from time to time and I, i really want to be transparent about that that i realized in my recovery that it wasn't so much about me cutting off that part of myself and it felt inauthentic to me to stop doing things that I did enjoy also from time to time. Um, and it was more about just finding a balance and developing a new relationship with that. So I know that I ended there on a certain note. I wanted to clear yes. that up.
0: Well, thank you for that. So would it be fair to say then the manner in which you enjoy it is more important than what it is that you're um, – doing
1: yeah you know and i don't feel the need to use it to escape from my problems anymore i don't spend hours at a time watching it and in the early stages you know i think the longest i went without watching it completely was about six months and i think that was a a pretty good thing to do for myself because it really interrupted that habit Mm -hmm. pattern that i was really stuck in um so that when i did return to it i didn't feel the need to just binge on it anymore yes. the way that I used to, I felt like I had come to a new place with yes. it.
0: Ironically, even though now there were even more new clips to right. explore, <laughs> that I was I was on somebody's podcast to, today, and we were talking about porn, and and I was saying it, the porn experience kind of falls into two categories. The uh, I'm going to find something that will work, have my release, and go do something else go to sleep whatever it is and the i don't want to face my life i'm it's going to be about the hunt and it's going to be for 5 hours looking mm-hmm. for the quote unquote perfect clip can you talk about that and how you know yeah. what's different and how you feel the difference in your body not necessarily your your genitals but you know your heart racing or your adrenaline or your sham whatever
1: Yeah, I guess I don't feel that adrenaline anymore. It's still exciting to me to watch porn. um, But it's not... I guess I don't watch it to get that shame that I used to get from it before. Because that was part of it. I used to watch clips also that were really... Demeaning to women and really violent and kind of grossed me out um, and that was really part of it. not to say that you know that you can 't watch those in a healthy way too. I think that you know, they're consenting I wanna, partners, yeah. yeah, I think that i don't want to judge anybody's sexual expression or anything, um but I know in the way that I searched for it in the past was to feel bad, and now I just i don't need to take it there anymore i don 't know how to describe how I actually got there other than the fact that. I learned how to deal with my problems. I learned that shame wasn't something that was serving me, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really keeping me from feeling happy and fulfilled. It, and I, I just didn't want that anymore.
0: Shame is like the biggest pair of cement boots. It is. It is. Um, there's a book by John Bradshaw called uh, Healing the Shame that Binds. And if anybody wants to really explore it, that and uh, anything by Brene Brown uh, about shame, mm-hmm. um, and it is the gasoline, uh, oftentimes that addiction, especially sex addiction, uh, runs on. I know I'm telling you, I'm not telling you anything <laughs> you don't know. This is more for the the, the listener. Um, going back to your first sexual experiences, can you take us through an an arc of what purpose it began to serve, um, and? Your internal mental life, in terms of what fantasies became your go-to, um, and if if there, if you've had any insights looking back at it, so, if you're if you're comfortable sharing, I, I know you've you've shared some of the porn you look at, so I assume that this isn't this isn't a question that's um, inappropriate. No,
1: it's not inappropriate. A couple of my first earliest sexual experiences were with guys who were older than me and more experienced, more sexually experienced and just had more life experience because they were older um
0: how much of an age difference are we talking so
1: one was only a few years so i was 17 with both of these people and one was only i think 20 Mm -hmm. and the other one was I think 30. So it was quite a big difference with the second one. Um, and both of them made me feel like I was a little girl and they just wanted to have sex with me and that's it. So I was just felt like a prop for them. Um, and that made me feel horrible. And
0: They weren't interested in what you had to say, what your inner life was. But
1: it's hard to explain because I felt horrible, but also kind of excited by it. Um, And it was really difficult for me to process what that meant and why I wanted to keep going after them. I, I think I was thinking maybe they would eventually be interested in who I was as a person. And we'd kind of just play this sexual game for a little while and then they'd be interested, but that never happened. And then they would
0: tell your dad how interesting you are and then your dad would pay (laughs) attention to you. Yeah,
1: maybe. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds like that. (laughs) Um, And, and, I got really angry from those experiences. So then the the experience that I had after that, the boyfriend I had after that when I was first starting college, um, because I had these two experiences before that, I was vicious to him and he was very sensitive and he's this artist, this poet, and really wanted to love me. And I just wanted to prove to him that I was this all-powerful, mean bitch and I was gonna control him. And, and I just wanted to take out all of this aggression on him because I thought, well, all guys are the same even though he obviously wasn't acting the same. Um, and it gave me this surge of power. And it made me feel like, oh, this must be what those other guys felt when they were doing this to mm. me. And so I just kept playing this this game as I went on with my, my relationships. Um, I would often pursue these guys who treated me really poorly and and then when it came to the real thing or guys that were kind to me i would push them away or sabotage those relationships even when i really did want something with them if i really started to like somebody i didn't trust that and it didn't feel comfortable to me and so i would just push that away and always go for the bad guy and the guy who's going to make me feel like shit because that's how i remember things being at the beginning and it was oh so exciting and i i couldn't get that out of my head
0: uh- You know, it almost sounds like the sex had been you had been surprised by sex being used as a weapon. And then you kind of made the conscious or unconscious choice to say, well, I'm going to grab the weapon first before they can because I'm going to be in charge of my sexuality.
1: Yeah.
0: And and which isn't necessarily a great solution to it, more (laughs) of a protective thing, because, uh, you know, obviously the great choice would be I'm going to find somebody I can be intimate with, but I think something's fight or flight kicks into our brain at that point, and there's a high that's discharged from sexual experiences when we're the one in control then. For you, did your sexual pleasure take on a different component when you suddenly were the one who was, who was in charge? Did it have a, a a component to it that felt different and more addictive to it than when it was with those two older guys?
1: I think I preferred the relationships where I felt like they were using me um, instead of the other way around where I felt dominated. Mm -hmm. And yeah i I don't really know what was different about the actual like physical sensation. all of them gave me a rush, and I did kind of convince myself after a while, even when I was with these people where I felt used by that I was in control of that situation too um, and I was you know my agency was was very much there because I was choosing it. Obviously, nobody forced me to be in those situations um but but yeah, I'd have to think on that a little more because it's an interesting an interesting thing to ponder that i haven't before
0: can you describe if possible what you experience in your body having sex with somebody who's safe and there's intimacy for instance your husband versus um a a hookup where it's as you've described in an article somebody that you didn't even like um and I, again, I don't necessarily mean in your genitals. I, I mean the often, like our nervous system. There, there's a, a, a difference. The way our heart beats, you know, mm-hmm. the adrenaline. The um, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I I feel like in a casual hookup, it was a much faster. Um, it was faster gratification and like a a quick and easy and like, I'm not like almost animalistic. It felt like very much a physical forceful in my body thing. I I don't know.
0: Like a purging quality. Like you're getting something out.
1: Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Like the, I'm getting something out. Like, like it is this relieving quality to it. Whereas, it's really difficult to describe. I know. I'm, I'm always trying. <laughs> In an intimate relationship, it feels like more whole or something. You yeah. know, like not as violent. Like I'm, oh, I, I'm not being eloquent at all here. It's really. It's it, difficult to talk about. It sex is. It is. It? It,
0: because a lot of times the topic of sex, people. Just want to write it off and say, oh, it's just about genitals and exploitation and titillation. But no, it, it is a window to the deepest, darkest part of ourselves, in my opinion. And it's such a fruitful way, oftentimes, to get a piece of information to put together a puzzle of why maybe we are the way we are, why we see the world the way we do. Why, for instance, uh, maybe we don't buy ourselves a new pair of socks you know when our socks have holes in them it seems unrelated to the sexual acting out but it's not perfectionism all these things hooked together into one big old, big tangled bowl of spaghetti for so many of us where it's where it's addictive and so i often like to know as much of the detail around the emotional component and the central nervous system kind of component of it as as possible um to yeah. separate the two the The healthy intimate sex versus the compulsive shaming uh, version of it does that does that make sense
1: yeah i would say that the casual sex was definitely more lonely than um the sex that i would have with somebody that i loved i really felt like i'm actually connecting with somebody when i'm with somebody i love like we are seeing each other and without sounding cheesy like we're in each other's minds almost you know like our souls are touching in this really beautiful way and there's love and understanding there and just real communication um and in casual hookups, you don't really have all of that yeah. extra stuff. It's about your bodies coming together for one purpose and then going away again. And not to say that's bad. Sometimes that's really great. Um, but what I was really missing out on was that love, intimate connection part of it. I wanted to know what that felt like. And I was denying myself that yeah. for so long um, because I'll, it was easier to just yeah. do the whole um, physical thing and without anything else.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think it's, that makes sense. It's, it's the, the compulsive shame based acting out often feels like there's a, a, a component of dehumanizing that other person, you know, not overtly to them, but turning them into an object, a prop mm-hmm. to heighten our orgasm. Um, and we're in control and we're doing some type of manipulating, even if it's putting ourselves into a position where we're we're being debased. Whereas the other one is almost like we're zooming in on our partners' humanity mm. and and seeing them as a full real person. And and talk about the feeling that you get physically and emotionally, when you have that moment with someone like your husband, where where you, I assume you feel seen. Yeah. I feel accepted. Seen,
1: I feel accepted. I feel supported. Safe. And safe. Um, and just heard like I could say and reveal anything about myself and he isn't going to run away. That nothing will be lost here if I just show who I am. If I just speak. Um,
0: it's not compulsive.
1: Right. And for so long, I felt like hiding was the safer thing to do when it's really not because then you're just living this this really lonely existence, and
0: so lonely, uh, yeah, so lonely um, so going back to the uh the fantasy uh aspect of it, if you can paint kind of an arc of where um Different fantasies began to uh, come into your rolodex, for lack of a, a, a better word. Um, you know, I think we all have some, like some go-tos, either like a site that we will go to, or a fantasy that we'll have in our head. And I think for a lot of us, it starts out in a certain place when we first start having sexual experiences, and then it tends to go to a different. Place. If that's something that you're comfortable uh, talking about, could you talk about that?
1: I think my fantasy always pretty much revolved around being rejected and being cheated on. And it kind of never budged from that, to be honest. I always was afraid of social rejection. And so I feel like that just carried over naturally into being sexually rejected as well.
0: That makes so <laughs> sense to, with the the Jack Moran thing is it's a thing that you have the most anxiety about.
1: Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I would often cheat about... Uh, fantasize about my boyfriend's cheating on me and if we were even like sitting in a restaurant and the girl took our order and he smiled at her then i would think okay well you know he's going to cheat and on me with this person, and then later on we'd have sex, and I would picture this woman in my head, um, and just make it really real, and and you know have great orgasms over it. And it was always me, and then obviously feel horrible afterward because I didn't want that thing to happen. And I thought if I keep thinking about this and and having orgasms to it, then that this is going to happen. I'm going to bring it into existence. So there was lots of panic and anxiety and fear about that,
0: especially thinking that that was a personal failure on your part instead of knowing that this is a this is an action thing. This is a process that the human mind goes through, um, mm-hmm. probably to, I don't know, protect itself. Who, who knows?
1: Yeah. And then later on, I started reading about cuckolding and thinking, Mm -hmm. Oh, no, maybe that's something I'm like, I'm eventually leading up to and that put a whole new kind of panic in my head Mm -hmm. as if I had no control over it. Like somehow I'm going to stumble into this. And now that's going to be my new life. And it's all very scary and fear based. But I'm really anxious about most things. I'm very nervous flyer and lots of anxiety um, takes up my my mind.
0: I've yet (laughs) to meet an addict that isn't a control freak or a perfectionist on some level. Yeah, it's so it common sense. with us. Yeah, and it, and it's exhausting trying to control the universe. But letting go is so scary. If you could go in a time machine and go talk to little you, what age would you choose and what would you say to her or what do, would you like her to hear or be able to ask you or say to you?
1: Hmm. I think I would go back to 10 years old when I first started to get curious about boys and and not just boys. I was also really attracted to girls as well. So just to get curious sexually, um, and I wasn't masturbating yet, or I had no idea how sex worked. It was all a big mystery to me. But I remember being very excited by those feelings and and the feeling of getting turned on and not knowing what it was, but I wasn't feeling bad about it then, um, And I remember I have the scene in my book where I talk about this t-shirt that I wore all the time that said boys on it and it was kind of like my way of saying that I was a sexual being without really knowing what that meant but like I wanted boys to see me wear and to know that I was interested in all this stuff because I would go back and just say to not lose that what you're feeling is is great and it's it makes you feel good and to feel good is a great thing and you're worthy of feeling good And just to hold on to it because um, not long after I lost it and, you know, things went out of control a bit. And I think I could have prevented that if I just felt okay and felt worthy of that kind of pleasure.
0: What do you think 12-year-old you would have said to you if she had had a chance to talk to somebody who understood her?
1: I think she would say... I'm having all of these feelings. um,
0: And I mean just about everything in general, not necessarily sex.
1: Yeah. So I'm having all of these feelings of inadequacy. And I don't think people like me very much. And I'm scared to speak up in class. I'm scared to talk to other people. I feel really alone. And, um, you know, is everything going to be okay? (laughs) I think she would really need to hear that. Everything is going okay, and you know you're gonna go through some hard times, but you'll get through them and come out the other side so much stronger. and um, yeah, you're gonna be safe and and loved, and life's gonna be fun.
0: <laughs> what do you think she would have said? I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're lying you're really accurate <laughs> you uh, have you actually done this? Because that sounds exactly like how that twelve year old would what do you want from me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, leave me alone. I'm listening to Kurt Cobain. <laughs> uh,
0: was was he somebody whose music you uh, really connected to? Oh, yeah. I what? was a
1: huge Nirvana fan. Talk about that. Um, so I got into his music maybe two months after he died. I'm pretty sure I heard about him because he died and it was all over MTV. Um, But I remember just, I had like his favorite flowers in the corner of my room. My brother used to make fun of me so bad because I would have like a huge poster of him and candles lit and a a whole visual setup. Um, But, you know, I, I, I really romanticized Angst then, and because I was feeling so alone and so upset all the time, and and I think that he provided a good model. I don't want to say a good model because things didn't turn out okay for him, but um, a good model in the sense that he expressed so much of his pain through art, and I really wanted to do that. Um, You know, and so I wrote a lot and and tried to use creativity as an outlet. So when I wasn't masturbating uh, and watching porn and stuff, I did have the art as as an alternative to that, and I really nurtured that, and I never gave it up. You know, Mm. and it it helps me to this day. So I really feel like like he was a good model in that sense, and made really cool songs,
0: (laughs) amazing songs, and he was really kind of the first mainstream, you know, outsider rock, mm-hmm. kind of uh, the kids that got picked on becoming rock stars. Yeah. It felt like to me.
1: Yeah. He also had scoliosis, so I had this, like, connection with him with the scoliosis. <laughs> you get my bent spine <laughs> like nobody else yeah. does. <laughs>
0: um, And you could just see the pain and depression in his eyes, the self-hate. You, it's... It yeah. Um, so, what haven't we talked about that that you would like to share with the listener?
1: Um, I don't know. Because I have Otherwise, more. I have more I questions.
0: We, but I.
1: I think just what I really wanted to make clear with this book is that there wasn't any one way to get into this addiction. I think that a lot of people think um, they have this narrative that plays where you have to have sexual abuse or have this really huge trauma happen to you in order to fall into this, these kind of patterns. Um, And you know, I know that I had the scoliosis and I talk about these, these things that happened in my childhood, but there was no like huge trauma and i I think that we have to start expanding that story a little bit and and to tell that addiction can affect anybody um and also to show that there's also not one way out you know 12 step might work for one person and not Mm -hmm. for another person and i think i tried a lot of different things to try and figure myself out and try to learn how to live in a healthier way and i think it's really important to try a lot of things to figure out what works for you because you might go to a 12-step meeting and get scared away and then that's mm-hmm. it you just keep doing what you're doing and being unhappy and I think that it's important to show that you can try lots of things
0: yes being open-minded in recovery there is being open-minded in patient there are, I think there aren't two more important things um, talk about when you decided I need help was there a bottom was there a moment where you were like, I, c- I can't do this anymore.
1: Yeah, people often ask me this in interviews, and I think there were a lot of different bottoms. It's hard for me to choose one because it was just, it's it wasn't a, a straight path. It was a really windy road to, to get to where I am now. But I think that throughout my 20s, I felt like I had a problem with sex. It was pretty clear to me that I had a problem with sex. I just didn't know what to do about it. And... Um, and I had just been sabotaging so many of my relationships. And there was one relationship in particular where I really loved this person and felt loved by him. And I really felt like, you know, maybe we'd get married and maybe, you know, I could be happy and worthy of this. But I destroyed it anyway. And I ended up running away to some guy that I could have this crazy month of really violent and demeaning sex and, um, and just feel bad about myself for, you know, as long as I could.
0: Was the violent and demeaning sex something that you knew you were getting into? Or was it something that you didn't want, but a part of you felt compelled to stay?
1: I wanted it. I I enjoyed it to a certain extent, but only until I had the- Sexually. Sexually enjoyed it. Yeah. Until I had the orgasm, of course, and then I would feel like, what am I doing? And, you know, and then all of this regret would- would fill my head like I couldn't believe that I would destroy this really great relationship where I really felt like I could be intimate with another person and push that away for this. Um, and that was really the beginning of, of things changing for me. My 30th birthday was coming up, and I decided to take this really exotic trip to Bali, kind of inspired by Eat, Pray, Love. And I really wanted my 30s to be different than my 20s. And I wanted to believe that I was worthy of love and a good relationship and just to be kinder to myself. And that's when things kind of started turning around for me.
0: Um, and can you can you share any particular steps along the way that, um, you know, little kind of tools that you...
1: Yeah, so grabbed or I,
0: moments that you, where you had epiphanies or started to feel some type of uh, turnaround or healing?
1: Yeah. So when I got to Bali, I started just taking care of myself. I started doing a lot of yoga and meditating a lot and just getting in tune with my thoughts. And I had this really beautiful teacher um, in Bali who was all about It was Kundalini yoga, but it was all about exposing yourself. And she always made that a real point of the class that, like, we are so scared to expose ourselves, but what would it be like if we just did that? And, you know, would. Would you die? You know, like what? What could? What's the worst thing that could happen? And I had been so scared of being exposed, you know. But that really stuck in my head as something mm-hmm. important, um, and a lesson that I could take into my life. And,
0: and when she says exposed, does she mean uh, being vulnerable about the parts of you that you try to that you have shame about? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, definitely. So
0: sharing secrets.
1: Sharing secrets. Dreams. Being yourself. Right? Yeah. Saying the thing that you think other thing, other people will think are crazy. You know, yeah. just...
0: Standing and, up to somebody, maybe even.
1: Yeah, standing up to somebody. Just, just being real and being out there and vulnerable. Authentic. And authentic, yes. Um, and when I was there, I was in this space of being really clear-headed and... I met my husband and and he was on his own path. He's in recovery for drug addiction at that time. And um, we just were able to meet each other on our paths and, and connect with this and with the intention of being healthier and being intimate with another person, because we both wanted to know what that felt like. And, um, and that was the first time I revealed to somebody that maybe I was a sex addict and he didn't run away. And it was awesome. And I was like, I got to do more of this.
0: You have to share with us that conversation because uh, I can't imagine how fraught with anxiety the lead up to that moment was.
1: Yeah. For you. It was actually so we were together in in Bali for a couple of weeks And then he was living in China, so I followed him out to China, which sounds kind of crazy. Like, I'm following this guy I really like that I don't know, but it was actually um, really daring of me. You know, I really wanted to see if it could work. So we went to China, and we didn't have such a good time in China, so we split up um, for three months. I came back to LA, he stayed in China, but we were talking a lot on email and Gchat and stuff. And while I was in LA, I had seen the movie Shame, and Such a good movie. It was, uh, it was really, really a big deal for me. Because, that movie
0: and thanks for sharing.
1: Oh, thanks for sharing is great too. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. But Sorry. shame. Yeah, it really made me uncomfortable. Made me feel less alone. Made me feel exposed. Made me feel all these things because I just recognized myself so much in this person, um, and I had never really seen that on the big screen before. And um, I started going to my first, I went to my first 12 step meeting not long after I saw that movie and I decided I was gonna stop looking at porn and stop masturbating. And so I didn't masturbate for a whole month. And the emotions that came oh up in my me God. were so intense.
0: So intense.
1: I mean, I cried so much, like almost every day over the littlest things. It was just a roller coaster mm. because I just hadn't, I had been numbing myself for so long. Yeah. And, um, it was really an important thing for me to do. And, and yeah, so while I was there in LA going to the meetings and I was chatting with him online one day and we were talking about maybe meeting up again. And I said, okay, well, if we're going to meet up again, I've got to just be real and tell him what's going on with me. So then I revealed to him, look, I think I'm, I may be a sex addict. I'm starting to go to meetings. And he said, Oh, that, that makes complete sense. And I was like, what do you mean that makes complete sense? And then he started revealing things to me that that had made him believe that maybe I did have a problem with sex. I was really um, emotionally distant during sex. I, um, you know, I didn't look him in the eye and I just seemed really disconnected and all, all these sorts of things that, that I didn't think he noticed, you know, or wouldn't say to me, at least if he noticed. And, um, And so i shut the computer you know i didn't want to deal with that it was scary but then we kept talking you know and we kept revealing these things i i kept revealing these things about my sexuality and my past and and we just got to a better place we decided to meet up again um after that and the rest is yeah
0: was there a moment when you were having sex with him where you were able to hold eye contact yeah and was it do you feel it was influenced by your sharing your innermost self with him prior yeah. to that
1: yeah Talk it was still that. scary yeah. you know it's still even now I don't really like looking people in the eye and then during sex still it's like oh it could be kind of awkward or mm-hmm. like we're we're just seeing too much of each other um but have, it also have
0: you tried goggles goggles yeah a nice pair of goggles no. <laughs> <laughs> nice pair of ski goggles that. yes
1: <laughs> that's a good tip um, but yeah, it's just like you said, you know, it's this this feeling of being seen, being and, seen. and seeing someone and uh, connecting over that. Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, a lot of the themes I see in people um, who struggle with uh, compulsive sexual or romantic uh, acting out is there was some type of neglect, something missing in childhood, uh, feeling invisible, could be abuse, could be something else. But there was there was like some boilerplate thing that a, a kid needs that that wasn't there. And um, it, I hope anybody listening to this um, has a different view if you're struggling with sexual compulsion or romantic compulsion or any compulsion that you don't uh, say, well, I was just born a horrible person and I'm doomed to be this way the rest of my life because um, your authenticity is in there inside you. It's really about shedding the things that, that kind of block it. Mm. Uh, what are some of the things that you feel like you have shed to get to the authentic, or at least more authentic person you are today? Ideas about yourself, how you relate to people, um, how you deal with certain things?
1: I think of fear of, of looking crazy or sounding stupid.
0: Letting um, go of that.
1: Letting go of that has been a big, a big thing for me. I would, um, say, I would
0: say, writing a book called "Getting Off" would be a good way to start that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, just letting go of what I think other people want me to be, or trying to fit myself into some ca- some kind of category of what's good and what's right, um, and and just kind of following what feels good you know
0: have there been times along the way in doing that where that was challenged and you had to put it to the test where somebody judged you or tried to convince you to not do this thing you were doing or saying or being
1: as far as the book or uh, no, no no
0: no as far as being your more authentic self and not caring what people thought
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I I could think of different time. I mean, obviously, when I was picked on in school, I really felt like this, this fear of, of showing who I was or saying the wrong thing, because I didn't want to draw attention to myself. Um, but I could remember different times throughout my 20s and in my teens of maybe being too heavy of bringing up things that maybe darkened the mood, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and not keeping things light and polite and pretty. Um... But I was always really interested in talking about this dark stuff, even if I kept it to myself and was often I go back and read journals and it's all kind of dark and a bit scary and pessimistic, some of it. But I felt like it was such a need to get that out or else it just lives in your head. And then to be able to talk about that with another person. And then they share their dark stuff with you, and you realize oh. that you both feel this way, and you know, then you have this beautiful connection oh, that yeah. didn't exist
0: before. Did us. you see this newest serial killer documentary? <laughs> it's fucking amazing. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. What are what are some non sexual, uh, dark things that kind of. Uh, grab your attention that that you feel like oh this is kind of a weird part of me but i like sharing it with other people because it brings me closer together
1: oh i don't i don't know i mean as far as like dark
0: are you just talking about talking about depression or suicidal thoughts like heavy
1: and and dark yeah yeah Okay. It's just like my fears and anxieties over over things, you know. I think that that's worth bringing up sometimes because other people may feel that way, too. And then it's not so scary anymore. Uh,
0: I, I knew <laughs> I was definitely fucked up one day when I saw on my Netflix list, or maybe it was iTunes, that there was a documentary about the band Joy Division uh, because I knew the singer had taken his life and i felt this warm comfort that i was going to be able to escape into that for an hour and a half and i thought (laughs) what the fuck is wrong with me who gets excited (laughs) about a joy division documentary um (laughs) thank you so much for sharing all the the things that that you've shared um people can go to uh, 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 ericagarza.com and that's E R I C A G A R Z A dot com, uh, and there they can find any of your writing. Uh, do you have a link to uh, getting off there?
1: I do. Yes. Okay,
0: and obviously it's available on online and on
1: Barnes and Noble, bookstores. yeah, all the big bookstores. And-
0: yeah. Anything you'd like to share with uh, with the listeners before we we wrap up?
1: Oh no, just thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you. What a great uh, great conversation. Um, I love when I get a guest on who is I don't have to pull things out of, and who sheds light on something that doesn't typically uh, get talked about a lot. So many thanks to uh, to Erica. Uh, support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Uh, are you ready to start a new business? Well, with beautiful templates created by world-class designers, Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea. Into a new and unique website, uh, you can showcase your work. It's be it a blog, uh, whatever kind of content you can even sell products, what services. Uh, just a couple of clicks. There's a lot of dragging and dropping. Uh, I checked it out when they first started advertising uh, with this podcast a couple of years ago, and it is uh, it's really a it, it's so intuitive. Um, I took. Two hobbies that I have: taking pictures of dogs and uh, playing music. And I uploaded uh, them to a website I created on Squarespace. It's if you want to check it out, it's paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. I'll put a link under the show notes for this. And it took me less than two hours to put this whole thing together. Um, You know, we talk. uh, You know, as I mentioned earlier, about the importance of finding that part of you that you want to express. Well. It's a great tool to do that if you want other people to see it. And why not show it off with style? Uh, Their templates are really cool. Um, If you ever have a question, they have award-winning 24-7 customer support. Um, You know, what more can I say? Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Make it with Squarespace. That sounded a little bossy. I apologize. Uh so head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com and offer code MENTAL. Make it stand out with Squarespace. This is a happy moment uh, filled out by... For those of you that are new to the the podcast, um, we typically uh, do... Surveys in the beginning, then the interview, and then some more surveys afterwards. And the surveys towards the end of the podcast uh, can often be a little darker, um, more graphic than some of the other ones uh, earlier in the podcast. But um, it's so hard to pick what surveys I want to read because there's just so many, so many good ones. Uh, This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, I just love my dogs, man. And she writes, I live in a town beside an old railway station. The station hasn't been functioning in 50 years, and the train tracks have all been taken up a long time ago. The old route, route to my Canadian friends, uh, is now a beautiful walking track that crosses a river and has big, lush Irish fields on both sides. I love walking my dogs down this path. I love letting them off their leads, uh, that must be an Irish term, and seeing them run ahead of me. Their heads turn to check I'm still there every now and then. I love going into the fields especially at this time of year because there are big puddles that my Labrador loves splashing in and if the puddles are frozen over he jumps on them breaking through and frightening himself but instantly bouncing back to life as he realizes there is water underneath. He chases my second dog a terrier and she barks at him telling him off. I imagine he's a lion and she's a zebra as the colors suit My lab loves running. If he has a lot of energy that day, he runs in circles so fast, we call it crazy mode. He only has one eye, so his visual awareness is way off. And if he's really going crazy mode, he sometimes knocks me or my mom over, completely swiping our legs from under us, and we rise laughing, covered in mud, as the dog runs off somehow unaware and unapologetic. I love it when the grass grows really long and it sparkles in the sun and moves like waves in the wind. When it's that long, my terrier totally disappears into it except her long, fluffy tail that acts like a rudder, standing vertically and wagging furiously. I love it when we meet another dog owner in the fields and our dogs play together. That's my favorite of all. Seeing four or five dogs running together is the most beautiful thing, as us, the owners, stand gazing lovingly at them. I've just realized this long, happy moment has nothing to do with my mental health and I think maybe it's because when I'm out with my dogs, my problems disappear. It feels so natural and I feel so present. I never want those moments to end. Man, I have experienced what you are describing, especially when I was uh, a kid, Uh, the house I grew up in backed up against a, um, a forest preserve. Um, and then the forest preserve uh, filed for uh, sexual harassment. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist that joke. It just occurred to me, and um, no, it backed up to a, a forest preserve, and our family dog was named Misty, and she was a border collie, and fuck did she love to run, and we would uh, take her on walks through this forest preserve and along these abandoned railroad tracks, and... And she would disappear into these fields and you would just see her like a gazelle. She'd disappear and then she'd pop up again. And, and she would, when we'd be on a narrow path, she'd clip us behind the knees and knock us over and we would laugh. And this is like, I know that feeling. And the fact that you're in Ireland, where I'm hoping to go this uh, summer, um, just, um, uh, makes me want to experience that there. So if there's any folks in Ireland um, that have dogs and, uh, well, why don't you shoot me an email, a person that filled this out, and uh, if you're in a city I'm going to, I would love to go for a walk with you and your dogs. Um, This is a shame and secret survey, and this was filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Boobs Are My Weakness. Uh, and he is straight in his thirties, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, he writes, I feel like my interactions with women were shaped into something I wish they never would have been due to being molested by several women growing up. Uh, I thought all play with women was sexual. I have a troublesome time to make connections with women and not be sexual period. Um, he's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Um, He writes, as a mental health care provider, I feel bad for my mother. She passed away before she had the chance to get the help she deserved herself. Darkest thoughts. I often find myself wanting to harm pets, children, and other weaker creatures than myself. Darkest secrets. I have never been faithful in any of my relationships. Um, by the way, that's a really common f- thing for people who experienced uh, childhood or adolescent uh, sexual trauma. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to have a woman with a porn-styled booty sit on my face and use it for her pleasure. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? The big booty thing. They are hard to come by. Um, have you shared these things with others? I have. My ex fiance has a big butt, and has entertained the idea once she works through her body image issues. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel great. I've been journaling a lot these days. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I I share uh, uh, many weeks when I do the the podcast that when I go through the surveys, a theme presents itself. almost every week. Uh, now mind you, when I, when I do these, um, uh, especially the shame and secret surveys, I am way, way behind on keeping up with them. Uh, and I'm grateful that you guys fill them out, but, uh, I'm around number 8,000 and something. And there are 9,000, uh, of these, uh, have been filled out by people. And so I, Find that I can only read about ten a week. and Any more than that, and, and it's my battery feels like it starts to get drained by all the, the heaviness and et cetera, et cetera. So, when I see a theme, um, it's remarkable to me in that it is usually only in the space of ten surveys. Um, so I don't think I'm I'm forcing some some type of uh, theme on it. Um, And the theme this week uh, seems to be uh, men who were uh, sexually uh, violated by uh, women in some way. Uh, This is a struggle in a sentence, uh, at least for the shame and secret surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Curse of the Cat People. And uh, she describes her depression, eliminating all the sources of my unhappiness, yet still feeling alone and empty inside. And I want, and then snapshot of her life, she writes, I'm working at the place I always uh, work, in a beautiful town where I wanted to live, surrounded by interesting and inspiring people, and yet I still don't feel happy. What the fuck is wrong with me? And first of all, I want to tell you, you are not alone in feeling that. So many people feel that way. And my first thought when I read this was, those are all external things. And they may excite us initially, In terms of long term peace and a feeling of fulfillment, I think we need to clear out the shit that we jam down, the emotions we jam down as kids, or the negative messages, or, um, you know, tolerating toxic people, whatever it it is. But to me, our buried feelings, you know, uh, our semi conscious or even unconscious thoughts, are kind of the prism that we view the world through and no amount of set decorating is going to fix that prism. The prism has to be looked at, adjusted, cleaned, undistorted, and that's where getting help I think is so important because it's, uh, it's about the view, not what we're viewing. This is, is this part of the same one? No, this is a different one. This is uh, Struggle in a Sentence filled out by OG Cat Lady. And uh, about her depression, she writes, When I'm sad, I can't do anything but go to work and come home and be a blob on the sofa. But mostly I only ever feel okay. Not good, not bad. Just here trying to accomplish, accomplish something that might make me feel something. So I work hard to prove myself and fuck up my body to look okay. Um, man, so many of us know that feeling. It's It's just like treading water and it is a shitty way to fucking live. But the answer is not to give up or take our life or keep our lives small. But I think to process the feelings and ask for help in a variety of ways and keep asking for help, you know, therapy, psychiatry, um, meditation, uh, support groups, all that stuff. Um, About her ADD and ADHD, she writes, I can't focus on my fantasy long enough to actually do the deed. Ha ha. I have never experienced that where I'm, you know, masturbating and suddenly I find myself standing in the kitchen writing a check. (laughs) But I have experienced intending to do something else and then winding up masturbating. But I don't think that, I don't think that's ADD. Uh about her alcoholism. Uh if I'm drinking with my cat, then it doesn't count as drinking alone, right? Well, it depends. How old is your cat? Is is it legal age? Is the who's the designated driver? Um Yeah, I I don't mean to make fun. I'm not making fun of you or alcoholism, but um yeah. It's the lies we tell ourselves when we're battling an addiction. I was just talking with somebody today on my way to my support group meeting. And um, yeah, there's nobody we lie to more than ourselves. And speaking of support group meetings, the episode for next week is the interview with two of the guys from my support group who saved that shooting victim's life. Um, I think it was three weeks ago uh i shared i shared the details of it um i think i think it was two or three episodes ago uh but it's really it's a short interview but it's it's pretty damn powerful as they were these guys were both ex gangbangers and um anyway getting back to her survey um about her anorexia if i eat too much today nothing else i accomplish means anything about her love addiction, I don't know you, but I want you to save me. Oh my God, that is so fucking spot on. About her OCD, at least running up and down my stairs several times to check and recheck my flat iron burns calories. About experience, experiencing sexual bias, being fucking ecstatic to learn my new boss is gay because that means I really earned my job. <laughs> Oh, thank you for that. And then this is a great one. Imposter syndrome. It makes me feel like a little kid playing dress up. I show up to the boardroom overprepared, overdressed, and seemingly confident. But my feet that barely touch the ground while I sit in my chair are a symbolic reminder of how I do not belong. And despite a master's degree, CPA, and all-around achievements, I am a fraud. That's what your brain is telling you. But yeah. That's one of the most common things I read with people who, uh, go on to higher education, especially, uh, masters and PhDs is so many of them feel when they get done that they should feel differently and that they feel like a fraud, um, Snapshot from her life. Not being able to sleep, and every time I get up to go to the bathroom or do anything, which is many times a night, I check the corner of the room and closet to make sure no one is there to kill me. Fuck. This is a shame and secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Pearl Loves Me. And she is... Um, straight, in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, I've been the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, This guy I had sex with didn't tell me that he had herpes. Two weeks later, I discovered he had passed it on to me and that my life was over for sure. I ended up dating this asshole for two years after because I thought that's what I deserved. Uh, For those of you that haven't listened, we uh there's an episode with uh a woman who was uh, date raped and uh contracted herpes uh her name is Laura and um that's a really good episode uh, i think like 1 in 6 people has herpes and um it's really sad that it's so stigmatized and self-stigmatizing um when it's not that uncommon and and people do lead functioning Happy sex lives with it, if they're prepared and and uh, you know monitor it let's see um, she's been emotionally abused, and she writes both my parents were emotionally unavailable. My dad often working on the road for weeks on end, and my mother playing favorites with my twin brother and generally being cruel towards me. An example of this is when my brother and I were in high school. She found out he was smoking pot. She handled this by grounding both of us and screaming at me for weeks about it, even though at that point I couldn't have even told the difference from pot or oregano. She would corner me in my bedroom or in the car and just scream all the fucking time, for years. I escaped at 17, saw a slew of therapists, and although we aren't close, we have a functional relationship that works for us. Um, Darkest thoughts, people dying. I really struggle with rage and controlling my temper sometimes. And sometimes I just think about the best way someone should die. I'm not proud of this because I don't feel like it's constructive, but oftentimes I find myself getting pretty creative, which can help snap me out of my rage vortex. Hey man, if it works, it works. And if you're not killing people and it helps ease your thing, Picture the nid- knitting needles going through their eyes. Uh, darkest Secrets. The fact that I have herpes. I don't talk about it. My friends don't know. I had to find a therapist to help me come to terms with it. Uh, this has run my life since the diagnosis, although its weight is not as heavy since I went to therapy. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Softcore rape fantasies where I've been sex-trafficked and in a true, quote, ride or die fashion, I fuck the brains out of my assailant, quote, uh, and then parentheses, my boyfriend, in a desperate attempt of preferential treatment. It gets me off every time. That's so awesome that you have a boyfriend that you can you can share that with. Um, man, that can really bring people closer together when, when we can share the fantasies that we're we're really afraid of of sharing with another person because it's it's feeling that acceptance and then being able to take that to a, a sexual place can be so, so connecting and, and for a lot of us, healing even. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, your potential is limitless. Fuck experience. Fuck qualifications. Fuck resumes. Fuck talent. If you're breathing right now, you have what it takes to achieve or do the things you want, and if you're not doing what you want, then it's just because you haven't found your strength, and I know it's there. It's fucking there, and you will find it, and you will deserve it. That's beautiful. What, if anything, do you wish for? I just want the world to be okay. Now, wouldn't that be nice if we came to a day when the earth was okay? <laughs> Everybody just looked around like, do you have any drama going on? No. Uh, have you shared these things with others? I do this thing where I don't let people get to know me. Yeah, they may have known where I live or that I will engage in certain patterns of behavior, but there is not one person on this earth who has heard my fears, secrets, loves, desires, or hopes, maybe minus my last and most favorite therapist. I will explicitly state I have trust issues, which I chalk up to my mother's betrayal. Um to motherhood slash our relationship. How do you feel after writing these things down? More connected. I've been listening to the podcast for a couple of months and I'm so pleased there are so many freaks out there. I wanted to contribute because there's nothing better than realizing we have freaky friends out there if we know them or not. Amen, man. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You may have been dealt a shitty hand, but there are so many other things that can define who you are rather than what you've gone through. Also, Rome wasn't built in a day, and it's going to take a lot longer than that to fix what ails you. Yeah. Rome Rome was not built in a day, but that's really just because it was a shitty contractor. They promised. They said Rome was going to be built in a day, and then they didn't show up, and they called the contractor, and then... uh, And then they made pizza. (laughs) Oh, Oh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Coffee Buzz. And he is straight in his 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, He writes, no, I've never been sexually abused. um, But he says, uh, technically, I was raped by a date. We were both drunk, but I remember saying no more, saying no more than a few times. I don't know what to make of it. It doesn't feel like it has really affected me since it happened eight years ago, but then again, it was rape. So maybe it should be a bigger deal than what my emotions tell me. Um, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Not sure. Uh, I don't know that I was neglected emotionally. It seems to affect me every fucking day of my life, and I'm pretty sick of it. It's frustrating To be taken back to these basic emotions even after years of therapy and medication. Any positive experiences with abusers? My parents are not bad people and they tried to take care of me and my siblings growing up but they were too stubborn to listen to us or admit that our family had any problems. Darkest thoughts. If I really wanted to heal I could but I'm either too lazy or I simply don't see the point. Darkest secrets. I really miss a lot of the parts of the terrible, dysfunctional relationships I've had over the years. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The idea of cheating has always been a fantasy. It makes me feel confused because I really value trust in relationships. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Dad, you're depressed and you need a lot of help that I can't even begin to provide. I'm sorry. I think the really hard reality of that truth might be too painful for everyone involved. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I knew how to have a routine that I could be happy with and I could be productive every day instead of eventually asking, What's the point? and getting bogged down in an ex- existential mess. You know, I've gone through that and I know that feeling of being paralyzed by, I'm so fucking lazy. I should be doing this, but then feeling this invisible wall keeping us from doing it. And one of the things that I have found is shaming ourselves for not accomplishing more makes that wall thicker. And so, dude, if you want to nap, if you want to fuck off all day, just try doing that and not shaming yourself. It's worth trying. And maybe that you will find out that feeling like you don't have to go take care of this thing will make it not as intimidating. And maybe you'll even want to go do that thing. Um, And I would imagine there's probably some perfectionism in there as well. Um, How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit more free. Not much, but maybe a little. Maybe I realized a bit of how much denial has factored into my family and my upbringing and my present state. Thank you for that. And finally, we have a happy moment that I just fucking love. This is filled out by Long Live Lexi, and she writes, I was on tour, my first trip to Europe, with a band that I was playing keyboards in. I slipped away after sound check one night to go back to the tour bus. I was trying to finish a demo recording of one of my own songs in order to submit it for a grant proposal that was due the next night. I'd been slowly trying to piece my own music together for years, though I loved being a side musician too. I'd managed to get a keyboard part down earlier in the day, and here I was now on the empty bus, standing at our bunks with one bandmate's laptop and other's cables, singing this song I had written into the mic I used for backup vocals. It was dark except for the dim street light coming in and tonight happened to be Halloween and I happened to be in a yellow onesie and somehow I happened to be in Prague. And for some weird reason, I started to recall a horrible morning during high school years before. My dad had kicked our sweet cat out out of the house the night before, he hates animals, and told us not to let her in until he felt like it, basically. In the morning, she was meowing at my window while I was in bed, and I couldn't not let her in, though I felt sick at the trouble I knew I was going to be in. I have no idea why, but it didn't occur to me to just put her back outside when I left my room. Anyways, while I was in the bathroom, I heard my dad freak out in the hallway when he saw her, and he proceeded then to kick down the bathroom door to yell at me while I was sitting on the toilet taking a crap. Uh, The bathroom door was broken for years after that. And after that was over, I walked to school for early morning band practice, and my only relief was that I was wearing a beatnik costume with big black sunglasses because it happened to be Halloween that day too, so at least no one had to know I was crying. I think my band teacher actually did notice and asked me if I was okay in private, but I brushed it off while choking up again, saying it was just not a good morning in the parent-offspring relationship. So, snapping out of my reverie, standing there on the bus by myself, I had no idea why this memory popped up, but I realized it had not only been on Halloween, too, but it was exactly 10 years ago to the day, exactly 10 years ago, that I had been so terrified and so trapped and so unable to use my voice. And now here I was, ten years later. I'd come so far, still trying to figure things out, but so much less scared, so much freer, writing my own songs and fucking recording myself, singing my heart out to myself in a window of streetlight while people in weird costumes walked around the cobblestone alleys outside. I felt so much love for myself that is one of the most beautiful happy moments I've read in the six years of doing this show um I'm so grateful for the slices of your lives that you share with the other listeners and and with me and um it just it feels like such a community um To me, because you guys have also helped me through shit. You've, in the six years, you have the emails you've written uh, of support uh, when I've been going through whatever it is that I've been going through. And it means a lot to me. It really does. Um, So uh, if you're out there and you're struggling, um, you're not alone. And there is help. Uh, It just takes getting out of our comfort zone. And uh, if you don't find help the first time, keep doing it because it won't be long before you do find the help that sets you on the path to living a life that you enjoy. And um, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody fucked up I know in some is bizarrely beautifully fucked up, up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.